You are listening to the Cycling Podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España, powered by Super Sapiens, energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Today we are in La Guardia. Hello and buenas tardes from La Vuelta a España. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of tonight's episode. And as you heard our friend Rob Hatch just say, I am now in Spain and today I'm in La Guardia in La Rioja Alavesa. Now, today um, there, was an, there was an obvious choice of guests. Um, it's the resident wine expert for the cycling podcast so joining us from Pietra Santa in Tuscany and the former Leopard Trek team manager and team CSC team Sky and Orica Green Edge communications manager now Bon Vivant and wine industry savant also bike racing connoisseur we hope for the purposes of this podcast it's the fanciest Dan on the cycling podcast roster it's Brian Nygaard Brian how the devil are you I'm extremely well Thank you very much. I, I just got back from the Tour of Denmark, which I work where I worked as a commentator. How was the Tour of Denmark? We did not hear uh, the cycling podcast. Um, we did not pay too much attention to what was going on in Denmark. Well, for me, it's quite exotic, you know, not having lived in Denmark for almost yeah close to 25 years at this point. It's it's, it's not it doesn't even feel like a homecoming anymore. Uh, but it was it was good racing. It certainly was. And uh, remind it, us who won the race. I'm not even sure I can remember who won the race. Christophe Laporte won the bike race, followed by Magnus Sheffield of Team Ineos and Matthias Gelmoser of Trek Sigafredo. Ah. And Brian, were you able to follow much of the Vuelta a España's Gran Salida from the Netherlands? You know what, to be honest, I actually wasn't. Uh, I had but you've been catching, were... you've been revising, you've been swatting up all day, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I have, I have. And also in the evening, we did full stage commentating of the Tour of Denmark, so... It was sort of like my bedtime reading was looking at the classments and, and getting a bit of a recap because I knew you would probably quiz me on it once I got back on the pod. So I, you know, I tried to show up well prepared. And as, as you know from the Giro, I'm never late. No, you're not. You're not. You're a man after my own heart in that respect. Um, Brian, I'm not sure if you can see behind me. Um, you can see exactly where I am. I'm outside the press room currently, but you can probably just about see the silhouettes of the of the burnt uh, Rioja hills in the background, the vineyards, or maybe you can just see a Europe car van actually outside the back of the press room. Um, but were you reminded slightly of Tuscany today by the landscape? I'm thinking of the southern Tuscany, you know, out the south of Siena, Montalcino way. I mean, this part of the world, I understand, it looks a lot more yellow and a lot more burnt at the moment than it would under normal circumstances because of the lack of rain. Yeah, there's a, there's a massive drought in, in southern Europe, in northern Europe as well. Most of the rivers are, are running dry, and yeah, it's it's quite it's quite early that we're seeing this dry landscape. Usually, you know, where you are, the the harvest is not until October, and you know, I, I didn't I couldn't zoom in on on the vines when you were going through the the Rioja vineyards today, but I I, I could tell them, I'm, and they're probably also frustrated that ripening is is probably having happening a little bit faster than they like. Well, for those who don't enjoy the wine chat, rest assured I've rationed Brian to, I think I'm going to give him 30 seconds um, in the last part of the episode tonight. So um, so nothing to worry about on that score. Um, Brian, um, without further ado, we should proceed to the first regular feature of the Vuelta podcast. It is, well, let's hear what it is from Rob Hatch. El resumen del día a contrarreloj. The stage summary time trial. So, Brian, 
others have tried and well mostly succeeded so far um, I've been pleasantly surprised by the general level in the uh, resumen a contra reloj the stage summary time chart are you ready Brian Nygaard you have 90 uh, I seconds hope so. I hope so Daniel I'm starting my, my stopwatch I'm going to uh, start in... mine I am going to start mine as well Brian and I'm going to ask you to take it away So today's stage went from Vitoria Castells to La Guardia, 152 kilometers. There was a very early and successful attack initiated by Lutsenko and Demarki, and they were shortly after joined by four other relatively unknown riders. Uh, they were sort of doing a bit of an arm wrestle with the peloton all day. A bit harsh. Uh, a bit harsh. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit it's harsh. Not, I mean, <laughs> it's, this is not intended it's to be gone, gone. No, I see. It's six seconds in and you're already interrupting me. So basically, seeing that Lusenko was up there and, and, and potentially also leading the not just the virtual classification, but also the GC as such, they never really gave them a lot of time. Around two and a half minutes, I think, was the maximum they got. And as this was sort of a middle mountain stage with a relatively interesting finish for most types of riders, at least the ones who are in shape, it was bound to be caught with uh, around 22 kilometers to go with uh, at the Puerto de Herrera. And actually some rather significant names dropped off at this point. Gasing, Froome and quite significantly Juan Ayoso from UAE. As the riders were bombing into the climb, it, uh, it kind of looked like uh, what was bound to happen eventually. That with bonus seconds at the top, uh, the rockification was initiated. And after a short opening by Alejandro, uh, by uh, Alephilip, valuable, valuable seconds. I mean, valuable seconds lost already. You know, you're allowed to be late at the welter. So here I go. So after Alephilip was opening, uh, it, it was quite obvious that the strongest man today, not just on the climb uh, at the end, uh, but also here with bonus seconds were given away, was Roglic. It was a high-speed sort of descending. Yeah. Time's up, but since we're mates, I'm going to give you a bit of injury time. Carry on. But wrap okay, it up so now. there was some high-speed descending, including a bit of a... Uh, Acceleration from Remco uh, Evenepoel, but at the end it was all down to two riders who got a bit of a um, daylight from the rest of the group, and that was Roglic and Danish Mass Peterson. With Roglic finishing what he started on the climb, and he is now the new leader, the fourth leader from Jumbo Visma on the GC and this year's world. Very good, Brian. Excellent. Uh, anything to note on the other on the other classifications? Yeah, I was noticing and I was actually also wondering. So now, uh, obviously, Roglic is leading all the, most of the other GC riders within sort of close distance. But Simon Yates, I think most significantly, lost seven seconds. And he is now, after four stages, already 51 seconds behind in the GC. Uh, Evenepoel is 27 seconds behind. Carapaz is 33 seconds behind. So Roglic is currently leading with 13 seconds to his teammate Sepus, with uh, Ethan Hater on third with at 26 seconds. And Brian, any news on the points competition and the Kingdom Matters competition, or are they just unknown riders as well? No, they're not. So ben Bennett is leading the points competition, but Mass Peterson is certainly closing in. Uh, Bennett at 127 points, Mass Peterson now at 118. He managed to pick up his third 
second place, consecutive second place, so he's still yet to pick up his first win. The King of the Mountains uh, is led by another rider that I've never heard of before, certainly. Juan Bo from Oscar Telescadi. Brian. He's a previous um, audio diarist on the cycling podcast. Must have been in the early years then. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was about, it was about six months ago. No, it was, I think it was last year or the year before. <laughs> All right. Sorry, but I must, have, I must have been busy. You know, usually the Walter <laughs> is actually during harvest, so maybe it was when I was harvesting in Sonoma the last time. That's I'm my excuse sure. anyways. So he's, he's leading... Um, Youth competition is led by Ethan Hayter in front of Sivakov. Team's classification is Team Ineos in front of Paul hans William Wiesma on third. We didn't need that Anything much of a deep dive. To, no, you, we didn't want that much of a deep dive. Usually stage 20 before we mention the team's classification. But Brian, I was, try, I was trying to compensate for my lack of precision earlier on. Well, Brian, it was very comprehensive, very exhaustive, so congratulations on that and thank you. Um, Brian, it was the quintessential, ultimate roglification, a film we've seen many times before, a film I've seen almost as many times as, I don't know, Wedding Crashes or The Karate Kid. What's your guilty pleasure? What's the film that you've seen most often in your life? Well, I, I mean, I kind of hope that this is... Uh, it's, I think it's a bit early that Roglic has the jersey. Uh, but it's sort of, he's sort of following his, his normal strategy, isn't it, by picking up bonus seconds from stage win, picking up bonus seconds wherever he can. And it, it, to me, at least with him being in this, you know, brilliant shape so early on, it looks like he's ba building that cushion that could come in handy later on should he have his not usual third-week crisis, but he's certainly seen that happening to him before. So I kind of think this was all part of the plan, especially with... Uh, at team time trial opening the race so he's, he's building up a, a GC lead at an early point and then he's leaving it to the rest of the, his competitors to try and catch up later on exactly and um, Brian it is uh, something we've seen happen many times before particularly at the Vuelta España but the one doubt we did have this year was his fitness obviously you know after the crash in the Tour de France the, the suspense was maintained right up until last weekend his agent told me that they hadn't really made the decision of whether he would come to the Vuelta a España. Um, they decided that he would come and it's looked over the first four days as though he, he has been obviously on very good form. But at the finish today, I spoke to his director sportive, Grishin Nieman, just um, asked him whether he could shed a bit more light on that decision to finally come to the Vuelta. Also spoke to one of the other sort of unsung heroes of today's stage, a rider we didn't expect to see in the top five, but someone who's clearly going very well, Pavel Sivakov of Ineos Grenadiers. Let's hear from both of those chaps, Brian, shall we? Well, Grisha, that was the 2019 Roglic, the 2020 Roglic, the 2021 Roglic. Did you have any doubts that that was the Roglic that we would see this week? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, he, he did have a very, very uh, uh, hard time after, after pulling out of the tour because he did have a back injury. I mean, that's, uh, uh, and, uh, that was not easy and he couldn't train for quite a while, but... Uh, we were confident, uh, that's also what we decided on the latest moment, because we know when Primoz comes here, he wants to be uh, competitive. And that's why we decided so late that he's going. And uh, since, uh, at the point where he said, yes, I want to go, I was sure that he, that he will come here, in, uh, at least in the form uh, of, uh, maybe not in the form of 2021, but in the form of being, uh, uh, with, with the legs of being competitive for, for going, competing for the overall. And uh, that we saw today. 
So at that last meeting, I think it was last weekend, there was no real doubt and there was no difference of opinion. It was pretty emphatic. Yeah, I mean, uh, we basically, uh, we always planned with Primoz riding the Vuelta, but, but he was the one making the last call. He knows how he feels on training, uh, how his, bo his body responded to the first uh, hard training uh, sessions again, how his back was doing, and, and he was the one having the last call. And did you already get the sense after the team time trial, talking to the guys, that Primoz was, was very much ready? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, uh, together with Roan and with, with Edo, he was, he was the motor in the TTT as well. And, uh, but yeah, still, I think also for him, it was a little bit of uncertainty today, uh, how he would feel on the first real, real hard stage. Um, of course, that, that stage suited him, uh, so do a lot of uh, stages that are coming. And uh, yeah, we, we uh, took the opportunity and, and yeah, when it came down to a sprint, of course, he went for it. And what do you do with the jersey now, Grisha? You've had it for you've had it with four different riders already. What do you do with it over the next few days? Yeah, maybe we, we try to get another one in the jersey. No, I'm just joking. Uh, we we have to see. I mean, uh, uh, it's still three weeks. Uh, uh, Primoz in the, is in the perfect position, and uh, we will decide day by day what uh, what we are doing. Like I, what I said, uh, there are a lot of stages shooting uh, Primoz, but yeah, we we, we cannot. Uh, control and pull back the breakaway every day so uh, uh, yeah we have to decide day by day what we're doing. Pavel we, we didn't necessarily think that was going to be your kind of climb today and um, we thought the team might be well it seemed to be working for Ethan but tell us um, just about that last kilometer. Yeah I think it was just because uh, the day was so hard from the start uh, the pace was really high and uh, yeah a lot of guys just suffered all day I had a uh, pretty good legs today and managed to to put myself in good position in the last kilometer and then yeah just try to follow the the best uh, puncher let's say and yeah I think, I'm, I think I'm super happy with the with the legs as you said it's not my type of climb so yeah it's pretty good to, to have to apply there did you come into the Vuelta sort of knowing that that kind of explosive climbing and being good on those explosive climbs will be really important as it always is in the Vuelta yeah definitely definitely important uh, but this year I have to say there is a bit less of that which suits me a bit better. Uh, but yeah, uh, of course the water is always punchy, explosive and you see Roglic wins it three years in a row, so yeah, that suits him really well. And when he sprinted for those bonus seconds on the penultimate climb, I mean, he looked to us like it was the, the old Roglic again. And is that what you said to yourself as well, that he's gonna be there in the finale as well? Yeah, definitely, I think for today, yes. But you know, you never know on the long run in the third week how it's gonna be. Uh, how much workload he was able to do between the tour and now so yeah I think uh, might be flying now but we never know you know if he gives a level he's going to be really hard to beat but we never know how, how it's going to go in the it's a long race so three weeks so we'll see what happens the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España powered by Super Sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Still guessing on fueling? Not sure what or when to eat and drink on rides that matter? Never again. Optimize your fueling strategy with real-time glucose data, actionable insights, and personalized analytics. We're here to help you achieve your performance goals. Go to supersapiens.com for more on how to track your energy levels and fuel for success. Super Sapiens are our title sponsors and they have also launched the Super Sapiens podcast which you'll be able to find in whichever app you're using to listen to the cycling podcast and you can find out a lot more about the system of continuous glucose monitoring which 
an increasing number of elite athletes are using to fine-tune their nutrition strategies and get the best out of their bodies. Normally, the podcast is hosted by Zylon Van Eck and Dr. David Lippmann, who is the Director of Applied Science and Content at Super Sapiens. But in the most recent episode, Zylon has been posing the questions to Dr. Lippmann about all manner of things to do with the use of the super sapiens system and in this clip we're going to hear how different sports require different fueling strategies so cycling pretty much do what you want in terms of logistics because you've got bottles you've got pockets you've got all that stuff whereas and similarly for trail running to some extent you've got all sorts of stuff whereas marathoning might be different right crossfit they have multiple sessions a day so really for them it's about what do they eat at night what do they eat in the morning and then trying to get it as much between sessions and their between sessions is kind of more akin to what we are talking about during say a long run which would be simple carbohydrates maybe some protein something like that because they need to just recover ready to go again check out the super sapiens podcast and go to supersapiens.com if you want to find out more about how it all works and to sign up and start using the system the feeling is good, uh, yes, you, you are enjoying, uh, but yeah, then uh, starting the race, it's always then a different story, so uh, yeah, uh, coming to Spain and uh, start racing now. Uh, I, I mean, we will see at the end, uh, I, like I said, uh, we have to see how the race will develop, how my legs will be, uh, but yeah, I uh, just need to, to be attentive, uh, stay focused and uh, we'll see. Well, Brian, a new old storyline in the stage today, and that was an old feature revived from last year, the Daily Rog. We had that um, a year ago, and, um, well, it's basically a lot of Primoz Roglic. It's going to be a lot of Primoz Roglic doing what Primoz Roglic always does at the start of stages, um, saying very little, but doing so in you know his usual relatively charming sort of way. I don't know, uh, you know, we've heard it many, many, many times before and um, we, we try to sort of decipher the nuances and to see if we can pick up any clues about whether there's any coded meaning in there but um, rog is rog, um, la vuelta is la vuelta and el diario Roglic is, will be el diario Roglic. There's such a striking contrast between his explosive abilities on the bike <laughs> exactly and how it's just like flickering through a phone book when you hear him talking just, <laughs> I, you know as to say in the states a big bag or nothing well brian as always with grand tours we come in with these grandiose ideas about how many guys might contend for the race and i always say that you know within a week it's usually down to th- two three or four riders does this mean what we saw today does this mean that um that whittling down process has already started and within a few days it's going to be Primoz Roglic against not very many others uh, I'm not sure I'm not 100% sure I don't think it's it's not bad for the race that he's that he's leading and that he has to basically defend from now on but I mean there's also when you look at the the riders who are who are the obvious contenders now and they I think they're quite different in how they will manage their way to sort of try and, and, and take the jersey away from, from Roglic. You know, we still have to see how Evanepoel will unfold as a GC rider, if he ever will. And I think, you know, with the way that even if he lost a little bit of time today for whatever reason, Simon Yates is, he is still a former winner and he'll be strong once we, I think, once we hit the real climbs. And Enrique Mas is stronger than than usual, at least, especially early in the race. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of interesting perspectives. And, and I've, I also 
you know you can never say at you know early on in a Grand Tour race that you you, you can't say that Ineos is out of contention uh, this early. So I think now we have he's put a marker down. He's, he's Roglic as we know him, but they have a lot of work in, in front of them. The more the more work they have to do, the more I think potentially the more opportunities will arise uh, once the team is starting to wear down a little bit. Going in order of the riders you just mentioned, um, I need to ask you, Remco Evenepoel, are you a believer or are you a skeptic? Uh, so specifically as skeptical. As, as, as far, not of his political beliefs. but um, I know that he exists. <laughs> <laughs> as far as his credentials as a future Grand Tour winner may be concerned. Well, I don't think... Uh, Looking at him now, and I'm not saying that because I, I don't particularly hold him in, in enormous regard. I, he's, you know, his, his abilities in the bike are obviously incredible, but he's not someone that I've, I've, I'm, I've yet, I'm yet to take a liking to him. But I will say this, I don't think he'll, from what I've seen, based on what I've seen, I don't think he'll ever win a Grand Tour. Hmm. Um, I was saying to a Danish colleague, JP of Het Newsblad earlier, one of the things that makes it quite difficult to warm to Remco is that we all like an underdog, or we like at least one dimension of someone's narrative to be an underdog story. And as a Belgian, um, so he belongs to, a, he hails from the biggest, sort of most passionate cycling nation in the world, not biggest in terms of population or size, but um, in terms of interest and heritage. So he can't be an underdog on that score. He's been hyped since he was a teenager. So it's very difficult um, from that point of view, as against a Pogacar who comes from a small you know, European nation um, and who joined a team UAE that at that time was not necessarily noted for... Um, producing Grand Tour contenders, Grand Tour winners. So you know, everyone's got something of an underdog about them, um, but Remco really doesn't have much of that. Um, Brian, you were then going to talk about Simon Yates. Yeah, very. I mean, he is... I think he's still extremely competitive. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he knows how to win bike races, and I think he also knows how to crack the code of, of the welter. When That year when he won it, he was so incredibly strong in the last week. I think he was certainly on, on a... On a, another level than his than his contenders, and seeing his, you know, I'm, and I'm, I'm, I don't really want to talk about the year in 2018, and I know that he certainly doesn't either. But being in a position as a contender and not trying to defend the jersey early on, having Jumbo do the the bulk of the Jumbo Visma do the bulk of the work in the first part of the Welter, I think that suits him just fine. I think he that ambush position. Um, it's pretty, it's pretty good for some years. Losing seven seconds today is not a good sign, though, Brian. Um, I mean, I see... So a finish like today, I often say that prologue time trials, to my mind, are pretty re- revealing because they reveal how much punch um, a rider has in his legs, which is you know, often a good gauge of, of form. And you look at a guy, a rider like Emmerich Mass, OK, he has gone well on finishes like this before. I remember the one last year to Valdepeñas de Hayen, also won by Roglic, where Mass was... was, was the best of the rest um, so he has a, a bit of a record on stages like this however it signifies to me that someone like him is on great form um, similarly Sivakov who we heard from before the break there whereas Simon Yates I would expect him to be up there on a finish like today yeah I mean but also the finish today was a little bit I mean when seeing that mess Peterson was second it was it was a bit of a, a 
an unusual finish that almost looked like a, not a bunch sprint, but there was a lot of elbowing, there was a lot of positioning, shoulders being being rubbed, and then you could. I mean, I'm not saying that it's great to lose six or easy to lose six seven seconds when you when you're supposed to be in the GC, but because I think the the finish was a little bit almost like a, a, a run in to a flat stage with with you know with so much positioning going on. Usually, if it's a hard or harder climb where where the strongest guys come in one two three four five, this wasn't this this wasn't exactly it. If this was a really hard finish, Mess Peterson wouldn't have had anything to do up there. He would definitely overperform. That it was a great it was a great finish to see him you know contested against Roglic. But but I had it been a little bit harder, I think we would have probably seen a bit more the real level of Simon Yates. I don't think it was a a one to one expression of of him being not up there in general. Shoot at l'arrière du peloton, cycling podcast, team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, and this is Lionel popping up to tell you that this episode of our Vuelta coverage is sponsored by the Hammerhead Carew 2 cycle computer. While Daniel is hard at work in Spain covering the Vuelta, I've got a different project on. I've been plotting the routes on the Hammerhead dashboard for the second part of our Tour de Cos cycle tour around all of the Scottish football grounds. Simon Gill and I did the first half of the tour back in April and towards the end of September we'll head off again to do roughly speaking. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools and power plants They all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. El ritmo de la vuelta. The rhythm of the vuelta. This is El Ritmo de la Vuelta, the rhythm of the Vuelta, the daily feature where we revisit one year, one official song of the Vuelta and one edition of the race. We're going back to 1980 today, the year of, should I should I reveal this, Brian, the year of my birth? Uh, the official song was Funky Town by Lips Inc. Number one, Brian, it reached in 28 countries. Lips Inc. were a disco funk band from Minneapolis. VH1 years later ranked this song 37 of a hundred of their 100 greatest one-hit wonders of the 80s. Um, it's a pretty familiar track, this one, isn't it, Brian? Funky Town by Lips Inc. I think everyone knows it. Um, the Vuelta that year started in La Manga on the 22nd of April and finished on May the 11th. Roberto Vicentini, the Italian, won the prologue and would be one of only two riders to wear the Mayotte Amarillo, the other being Faustino Ruperez, the eventual winner. Ruperez was born in Soria, had trained as a welder before becoming a pro rider and was seen as one of the great rising stars of Spanish cycling after three consecutive editions of the Vuelta won by foreigners. He was also the Spanish road race champion in 1980 or reigning champion in 1980. He built his success on a stunning 
solo victory on stage five in the Pyrenees to Seo de Urgel. Um, he escaped 43 kilometers from the finish and won by over three minutes from Vicentini. Uh, he was just 23 at the time, apparently with the world at his feet. The crowds that greeted him in Madrid on the final day were enormous. Reports said 300,000, many of them from the Madrid suburb where he had lived for many years. Only one meter, 67 centimeters tall, weighing 60 kilos. Rupérez had the physique of a mountain goat, but the Spanish press believed he was, they, well, they dubbed him at least the Spanish Hino. Um, alas, that billing proved rather fanciful, after, and Rupérez's career turned out to be intense, bedeviled by crashes and rather short. He, he quit the sport in 1985 at the age of 29, with 31 victories to his name. Uh, he went on, however, Brian, to become a DS, and to this day remains the only man to win the Vuelta a España as a rider and a director sportif, having managed Sean Kelly to victory with Cass in 1988. Did you were you familiar with uh, Faustino Ruperez? Uh, Brian, no, I have to say, not at all. Interesting uh, little fragment of history, well before little vignette there. I, I even I even knew about cycling, other than getting myself to school. <laughs> well, Brian, uh, a couple of other performances caught the eye today, and I wanted to talk to you in particular um, about a couple of Aussies. Um, I said that you are our resident wine expert and bon vivant um, earlier in the podcast. You're also a bit of a resident Australian expert due to your years with Orica Green Edge. Ben O'Connor and Jai Hindley, how did you think that pair was going to fare in the Vuelta a España generally and today? If you look at them, they you know they're both good um, symbols of how you can approach the world. Because sometimes it's also, I wouldn't say last chance saloon, but it's it's sort of the race where you you, you want to do some kind of redemption or, or reckoning with the season, and that's definitely the case for for Ben O'Connor. You know, after his brilliant tour yes. in twenty one. As I always say, as I always say, the world is the grubby nightclub that you stumble into at the end of a Saturday night drinking session, isn't it? Anyway, Brian, go on. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. That's quite. I, I I can imagine that picture very 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 vividly from my former life. Um, yeah, and you know, if if with with that perspective, it's it's quite interesting how how it's, to see how Ben O'Connor will fare because he's definitely he's he's here to redeem himself. He's here to to ride the GC. You know, he's he's still quite a, a young rider, and a, a, but already I think with a significant amount of experience, both from the from the Giro and and certainly the Tour, and um, you know, as of now, he's he's definitely riding this this world at, at a very high level. And then going to Jai Hindi sixth with, today, you know, sixth today, Brian, another guy who's not yeah. really uh, a puncher, scatista, but sixth on a very explosive finish. Exactly. Well, and also, you know, if you compare him to to Jai Hindi, who was tenth today, who came in, he's already won a Grand Tour this year. He you know he finished the. That he wrapped up the Giro where you both and I, both you and I were witnesses to it, to how he wrapped up the Giro at, you know, at the very last minute. He's proved himself to be a, a very, very smart, I think, and, and, and pretty overall consistently brilliant in all kinds of terrain, kind of a GC rider. And, and he's the other Aussie here, but coming in, you know, I would say even if he doesn't do great at Walter, his season has still been phenomenal seeing that he, he, that he wrapped up that Giro win. But Having said that, he's he, he's obviously also here, you know, along with with Ben O'Connor as an as an Aussie with him. It's the Aussie ambition, isn't it? So, 
and he's starting off well. Be interesting. He's got a very strong team uh, alongside of him, stronger than than what Ben O'Connor has. But yeah, both of them are off to a good start. Both Perth boys, Brian. Um, how much of a bugbear would it be, or how how much of a source of teeth gnashing would it be at Orica or what is now Orica Bike Exchange, that there are not only these two Australian riders, um, but there, there are others as well. Jack Haig is one of them, um, who are well. They probably represent the best of Australia uh, that Australia has to offer, and Richie Port, of course, in Grand Tours, and none of them are at Orica Green Edge or what is now Orica Green age bike exchange well i wouldn't say that they're victims to their own success in the sense but the green edge project and and jerry ryan's investment in cycling has has lifted the game in general and has certainly done a lot for how cycling pro cycling is perceived uh, in australia so it's it it couldn't come as a surprise to anyone that there's there's a lot of growth coming out of of and a heightened interest you know obviously also with kind levels you know, with K11's tour victory and, and then with the birth of Greenwich the, the year after. I think they already see themselves and, 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 and knowing that from working with them that they see there's definitely, you know, obviously a team with an Australian DNA, but the, the, a lot of the significant success they, they have had, currently at least, is, is based on, on foreign riders. And they always, they, they always quite successfully ossify their foreign riders. I remember they called what did Jerry call Chavez the the Colombian kangaroo <laughs> and, and as we all know uh, the minute you sign the contract with a team you, you get an Aussie nickname so well, they'll, so they'll, talking, event, they'll eventually of, ossify anyone Yeah, talking of crushingly awful nicknames um, I'm usually guilty of coining those as well and in fact I do have one for Ben O'Connor um, I for a while now have been referring to Ben O'Connor as Superbock Superbock, of course, a famous Portuguese beer, as um, anyone who's been to Portugal will have seen and probably drunk. Superbock, B-O-C, Ben O'Connor. So um, Ben O'Connor is Superbock. Brian, I spoke to Ben O'Connor this morning in Vitoria Gasteiz about his ambitions for the Vuelta a España. Let's hear from him now, shall we? I'm keen. I mean, after the tour, I haven't done a proper stage for for quite a few months so yeah, I'm excited I can't uh, I can't complain it'd be nice to have less stressful racing hopefully and uh, let the legs do a bit more talking actually just I've only done Basque once I've been here a few times but I think I really like this style of racing that comes with the Basque and actually just the northern Spain with inclement weather and uh, harder gradients and moving terrain all the time I think that's kind of my kind of jam Ben, I was talking to Larry Walbus the other day and he talked about how motivated you were for this and how well you, you seem to have prepared, you've gone to altitude. Just talk a little bit about that and particularly the period of altitude and, and the, you know, the mental sort of process of getting ready. Yeah, I mean, when the tour is done, for me anyway, it was just uh, what's the next thing to look forward to? What's the next objective? And, and what are your chances? You know, it's probably the first and maybe the only time I'll get to prepare specifically for La Vuelta, you know, without the fatigue of the tour. So feeling kind of fresh of mind because you missed an objective, it's kind of cool because then you've come here now even more ready, but in a way without the same level of Tour de France, everything stress and all the shebang that comes with it. So yeah, spend a little bit of time up at altitude in Andorra, it was close to my house, so it was 
of a second just drive back and forth it was just like a really nice way to do it and yeah it's just been a good mood so <laughs> that's about it man there are a lot of very different finishes at any Vuelta España to the Tour de France punchy finishes a lot of uphill finishes have you trained more specifically than you would for a Tour de France for that kind of finish the 2k uphill 3k uphill at the end of a stage I mean in the end a lot of the ones here by a couple of these shorter ones are actually quite long more or less 700 800 meters elevation gain each time so what 25 30 minutes so I think it's kind of down my alley and they're not ridiculously steep which in the end isn't the worst for me either I mean it's, it's all about the length not so much the gradients that uh that I struggle with yeah, it's more the time um, so yeah it's not the same as the Alps where you have pretty much like Galibier Madeleine and then Alpe d'Huez for example it's very different to that you have always valley in between but the fatigue will set in because of just the accumulation of altitude every single day so that's why I can be kind of excited for it because I think it can suit um, me just need to make sure I do a good TT in uh, Alicante <laughs> well Brian he sounds very enthusiastic does he not yeah I think it's, it, it also really it, it chimes in and it, it, it works well with how the world looks for both from I would say both from the inside and from the outside and it I think that the lack of inherent stress even for someone who potentially could finish on the podium it, it makes for a nice atmosphere and i'm sure that you can you can feel that too in, in in whatever kind of mixed zone situation you're finding yourself in i can vouch for that brian um but ben o'connor is well he's strolling into the well he's positively glissading into the grubby nightclub at the end of the saturday night with a big smile on his face and i don't know and going heading straight to the bar making a beeline to the bar and ordering a, a round of, ro- of vodka and red bulls for everyone isn't he he's um, has that kind of that kind of mood um he, he appears to be um, Brian, speaking of drinking and the Vuelta, um, we're talking about Australians. You've got a good Vuelta story, or you need to at least explain to me how and why you were responsible for Stuart O'Grady getting kicked out of the Vuelta a España or sent home from the Vuelta a España many years ago. Well, it was both both him and, and Andy Schleck, wasn't it? And and to the day, I would like to contest contest that I was at all responsible for that but i do remember quite vividly the the, the surrounding atmosphere uh, of, set the scene what was the backdrop uh, to this so the backdrop to this was that it was already a known thing that both Stuart grady and andy slick were leaving csc uh Saxo bank at the time and they were m- moving on to uh riding for lipper track the year after but they had already agreed with Bjarne and especially Andy giving, had given him the handshake of wanting to, to, to finish off uh, with a good result in the, in the world. So, you know, we obviously had a great, uh, sorry, a great tour. And it, it, at least to me, it seemed, and, and Bjarne has definitely confirmed that also to me later on, that they, they were on good terms. You know, they, they had common ambitions and they wanted to finish the style. But as, it, as, sometimes, as can happen sometimes, uh, maybe not so much for riders, but but more so for people working at the world. Uh, you uh, the, um, you do feel the what was the name of that song? The nineteen eighty song again? Um, fun, um, uh, lip sync and funky town, funky town. Yeah, it, it's sort of like you get that funky town kind of vibe. You get caught up in you know um, if uh, there's an Aussie saying, if you have one, you have a ton. <laughs> and I think the, there were the hotel that that Saxo Bank was at uh, at, at some point in the in the world that was close to a 
close enough to a taverna or uh, something that was where they were serving ice cold beer and one beer took the other and i think they got they got a little bit um uh what would you call it drunk is probably carried a good away. word but let's, yeah i carried away by the atmosphere and the and the cold beer and uh, and Bianca walked in on them and he was certainly not happy with what he saw and and he sent them home uh rightfully so in my opinion uh i was at the time setting up the team in luxembourg and it, and we all knew once we heard this that it would draw massive headlines uh in luxembourg you know there was always this context around Andy that he wasn't serious that he you know he was you know especially from living in Luxembourg if you went out on a Friday in the off season you were very likely to see Andy at at one bar or the other or, or both of them and he was trying to shed that image and that that Walter deviation certainly didn't do him any good didn't do me any good either because I got, <laughs> for some reason I think that I'm not trying to be a martyr here but I got screamed at uh, and you know must have been my lack of tele- telepathic uh, abilities that didn't make me stop Andy from having his third or fourth Estrella. Um, so, yeah, and we, I, I was just, you know, bracing myself for the, for the, for the headlines the day after. And I, th- I think one of my closing arguments, arrive. yeah, I think my, my closing argument to, to, to my former psychopath of the boss, Flavio Becker, was that, well, you know, at least, at least he's starting the off-season early. And if he can get it out of his system in September, you know, we could be lucky. He might even actually ride pretty well in February. Friend of, the pod- friend of the podcast, Flavio Becker. Look forward oh, to you re- renewing your membership of the Friends of the Podcast <laughs> team next year. Um, With friends like that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, Brian, um, you are a resident Aussie. You're also, as um, as I specified in your introduction, you're the fanciest man um, on the cycling podcast roster. And as well, the, the fanciest member of our team, I thought you'd be the ideal man to possibly comment on well something historic that's happening at this Vuelta a España. And this brings us to today's Encuentro del Día. Take it away, Rob Hatch. Encuentro del día, the meeting of the day. Today's Encuentro del día, today's meeting of the day, Brian, was with the first Monegasque rider ever to ride a Grand Tour. He's riding for Burgos Biache, the Spanish team, the Spanish pro-continental team um, at this Vuelta España. He was called up at the last minute when Ángel Madrazo uh, failed a Covid test last week. His name is Victor Longelotti, or Longelotti, not sure how they pronounce that. Um, as I said the other day, I always get slightly confused with the Monegasque names. Anyway, Brian, I spoke to him this morning in Victoria Gasteis. Well, Victor, how is your Vuelta a España so far? Um, so it's been a, a dream so far. So I couldn't believe uh, I was called by the team to replace uh, Angel Madrazo. So yeah, I'm super happy to be here and I'm very enjoying the race every day. Tell me about last week, because you weren't supposed to be here initially. And where were you? Were you at home in Monaco or what happened last week? Yeah, exactly. I was home. I wasn't expecting racing here. So it's been a big surprise. They called me the day before the start. And uh, yeah, I just get into the plane <laughs> straight to Utrecht. And uh, here we are. <laughs> and how were you feeling on that plane? Uh, yeah, I was uh, yeah just thinking about the ways how I will do on the time trial with the team, and uh, yeah, just uh, very happy and a bit concerned by the ways also. So. 
And this year, was this always a plan for you or an ambition for you to maybe get on the long list or the short list for the Vuelta? Yeah, it's been the, yeah, the objective the whole season. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't uh, selected by the team uh, at the first. Uh, I mean, the first time I wasn't selected by the team. So I keep it positive. I went to Portugal, Volta Portugal. It was a pretty good race. I won the stage. So I was in good shape. And uh, yeah, when the, the opportunity presented, so I just keep it like this. And I'm super, super happy, super grateful for all the team to to count on me. And, you're the first Monegasque rider to ride a Grand Tour. I know you, your dad is the, the president of the Federation, is that right? So you probably know some of the history um, of Monegasque cycling. I mean, how proud are you to, to take that honor? No, I'm very proud. And uh, as you said, we are, yeah, we are a really small country with uh, only two professional riders. So uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's... Who's the other one? Antoine Berlin is the other one. And yeah, it's uh, historical. Uh, last week I get the first victory, so it was the first victory for a professional Monegas rider, and uh, now yeah, it's the first uh, time for a Monegas rider for to be in the Vuelta. So yeah, it's very very special, and yeah, I'm very proud to to be that guy. <laughs> and people will always be curious: how does someone have a normal life in Monaco? Because the life that we associate with Monaco is not normal. It's millionaires, it's sports stars, it's film stars. Um, what was your life like growing up? Um, it might surprise you, but my life is yeah completely normal. Uh, uh, yeah, of course I live in Monaco, but uh, yeah I live like a, a normal, a normal guy. Nothing really special and nothing really yeah different than uh, a Spanish, a French, or an Italian guy. Uh, of course, yeah, we, we live in a beautiful place with such a uh, yeah, prestigious uh, city. But uh, no, I just live like a normal guy. And you train with, do you train with any of the big stars that do live in Monaco? No, I, usually I train alone. But of course, when I go training, I'm, when I, if I left home at 10, for sure I'm going to see a professional rider. So we meet a, yeah, a lot of... Um, of really good riders, of well to riders. So, but I, have, I usually train alone. And last thing, Victor, what's your dream for this Vuelta España? It's already a dream to be here, but what would be a dream Vuelta España for you? No, as I told you, uh, it's already a, be, a dream to be here. And uh, now, of course, I think as a as a rider, we all want to win. So the dream will be to win the stage. But uh, I just keep it day by day, and uh, we'll see what happens. And, I just keep all the positive. For me, it's just a, a dream come true, and every day is a, I'm super excited, happy, grateful. Like it's a dream come true, so I just keep it every day. So, Brian, Victor Langelotti uh, from Monaco. Uh, Curious little human interest story at this one, Dice You're actually more, maybe more sort of elite sportsmen than people would imagine have come from Monaco, um, born and bred in Monaco. There's a tennis player, Olivier Boscalier, um, a tennis player, footballer, sorry, Olivier Boscalier, um, played for Nice. I think he still plays for Nice, actually. Um, so defender. Ines, Ines then, really? Yes, no, in fact, I think he's been transferred to PSV Eindhoven. Um, he's a defender. Um, there is a tennis player, Romain. Uh, Arniodo. Um, there's a bobslayer apparently as well. 
Um, Victor, as he said there, as I said to him, his father is the president of the Monaco Cycling Federation, so he has grown up with professional cycling. I, I guess there was a period when the president of the Monaco Cycling Federation was actually quite an important person in professional cycling because there was a time when, um, among other things, a Monaco racing license was seen as a way to sort of dodge, get around, circumvent doping sanctions. Um, not to nowadays, but that I think that was a thing 10 or 15 years ago. Science in Sport is supporting the cycling podcast at the 2022 Vuelta España. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Thank you very much to Science in Sport for supporting the cycling podcast. You can get 25% off everything at scienceinsport.com with the discount code SISCP25. I've talked a bit in the past about the beta fuel which I used during our ride in Scotland in the spring and I had the powder which I mixed up into a drink for my bidons and over the nine days of riding where we were doing around four or five hours of riding a day but probably two or three additional hours of sort of hanging around in the cold looking at the football grounds and talking to people not once did I feel like my energy levels were getting down towards a sort of critical um, point because I was keeping myself topped up with carbohydrate without really realizing it just by sipping on the drink little and often throughout the day I found it a very efficient way to keep fueled without having to eat large quantities of food which uh, I found benefited my riding as well now since uh, the April ride something else has come across my radar which is the beta fuel energy chew which is an even more efficient way to consume carbohydrate each chew has 46 grams of carbohydrate and you simply take them out of the packet pop them in your mouth chew them and you know that you are keeping topped up but be a responsible cyclist and pop the wrapping back in your pocket no littering the beautiful countryside please if you'd like to get 25% off the beta fuel energy chews and everything else at the scienceinsport.com website use the discount code SISCP25 and I should also mention that the energy chews are suitable for vegans too de mañana, la cena de ayer. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's food. Hola, hola. Entonces, podemos ordenar la temporada de verduras para sí. empezar, para compartir. Y después... Sí. So Brian, la etapa de mañana, la cena de ayer, well you even heard a bit of me ordering my cena de ayer yesterday in Oñati up there, north of Vitoria Gasteiz where I'm staying again tonight in the heart of the Basque country. I was ordering a vegetable tempura and then uh, they were my last despairing efforts before the vegan diet had to be canned definitively because um, well that duly happened with the main course um, I had a very nice actually I must admit um, solo mio uh, a steak and um, well I'm afraid there'll be more meat on the agenda tonight I'm sure that was yesterday's evening meal what about tomorrow's stage what's on the menu Brian well tomorrow is, is in a lot of ways actually a, a tour of the Basque country it's very important cycling terrain you know there's a big history of cycling in the Basque country and when you when you see the start to finish 
is from Iran to Bilbao. I don't think it gets more Basque than this. And, and anything Basque in cycling is it's lumpy. It's climbing. It's, I think it's around 3,000 meters of climbing on a 187-kilometer stage. It finishes in Bilbao, and they actually pass Bilbao with just 28 kilometers to go. And the last climb is 13 kilometers from the finish, and that's the second time they, they go on to tackle that climb, the Alto del, Alto del Vivero. Uh, so I would say it, it's, it has potential to be a, a breakaway stage, especially with the way the GC, uh, at least initially, is starting to unfold. I'm not sure that Jombo Visma will chase any kind of breakaway for for just for the sake of it. Other teams might want to uh, keep things under control. But um, I look forward to it, especially I think it'll be a very, very scenic stage. We're basically going from east to west on the... In the on on the Atlantic coast or in the proximity more or less during the entire day, and when we actually also pass Saint Sebastian, so it's a small, beautiful tour of the best country. Uh, I quite look forward to it. It's it's such a it's such a wonderful terrain. It's such a history laden part of cycling to to have some good racing in, in the best country. Brian, as you mentioned, there is a climb that tops out, second category climb, the Alto del Vivero, that tops out 13 kilometers from the finish. And it's a very famous climb in Basque cycling. It's the sort of decisive climb in the Circuito de Guecho, a one-day race that takes place in the Basque country, won just a few weeks ago, in fact, by Juan Ayuso, the Spanish prodigy, who actually didn't go as well as we thought he would today. He was looked as though he was suffering on the penultimate climb and then came in in the same group as Simon Yates, so lost seven seconds so the vivero features in that race it often features in the tour of the basque country and in fact brian tomorrow's finale is identical i believe to the finale to the stage um, that gave primos roglic his first ever road stage victory or road race victory for jumbo visma in 2017 um, a stage of the vuelta país basco um Finishing in Bilbao, Roglic won with a 2.8-kilometer solo attack. So good memories for him. In 2019, the Vuelta went over the Vivero as well. And the GC guys on that occasion kind of came in together. Philippe Gilbert won the stage. But um, as you said, this is quintessential Basque country, quintessential Basque cycling territory, isn't it? Fernando Escartin, who's sort of the route designer here um, at the Vuelta, said it's a beautiful stage, five mountain passes that'll be filled with the Basque public. Um, both climbs to the Vivero because the race goes over twice yesterday. We'll be responsible for selecting the leading group. It will be interesting to discover who controls the race, um, even without clear leaders in the general classification, particularly on a day that's not ideal for the sprinters. Um, Brian, I think unless that break goes away and, well, Jumbo Visma are pretty happy with it and the other teams are pretty happy with it early in the day, it's difficult to see how Roglic is going to lose the jersey tomorrow, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I think there's other teams that have a, a, a vested interest in, in keeping it together. So it, it'll all be down to what the structure of the breakaway will be. Um, it's still early, still a, lot of, still a lot of fresh legs in the race. A lot of people were probably keen to, to give it a go. Even as we saw today with rel- relatively strong riders. Yeah, I think um, Remco Vaynerpool might be one to watch tomorrow. Um, he kept a fairly low profile on that final climb today. Uh, he was finished sort of safely nestled into that first group of... How many riders was it? It was 
um, 12 riders. So Remco actually finished in eighth place. But I can imagine tomorrow's finale, it's, it's hectic off the top of the Vivero into Bilbao. And there is the opportunity for an opportunist to stay away and gain valuable time tomorrow. So I, I can see that happening also because Junior Alaphilippe is still clearly a little undercooked, or he certainly looked that way today. He was pretty well placed actually for the first few hundred meters of the final climb today and then he faded rapidly so sorry brian one thing that i've noticed uh, one thing that i've noticed with Evanepoel, and uh, and i think that could be the key to to his approach is that any uh, you know you mentioned it yourself it could be quite a hectic finale and oftentimes anything that's hectic he wants to mm. approach head first because he's he's still not it seems to me at least super comfortable by being in the peloton, even in a relatively reduced group, going into a hectic final. So oftentimes he'll just he'll give it a go and, and disappear. And I think looking at how you know, there's a potential that Alaphilippe could give him a hand. And I also think that what he's learned so far in his, I would say his, his failures to, to become a GC rider is that he will eventually have a bad day. If there's rain, if there's a sketchy descent, uh, whichever. So I actually also think that he would like to go out at some point. And, you know, he's been keeping his powder dry, but we're still early uh, in the race. But I think at some point he wants to start collecting some kind of buffer to to what might uh, weaken him later yeah, on. And just bearing in mind what you said about the conditions, Brian, looking at the forecast for tomorrow, we've got 50% chance of thunderstorms. Um, the storms, if they come, it seems as though it will be late in the afternoon, around about the time when the race might finish. So as you say, he might try to anticipate whatever might whatever trouble may come with the weather that some of the locals some of the basques have also been talking in the last few days about how little rain as you said um there has been and when it hasn't rained i mean some have said that hasn't been any rain for three or four months literally zero there was actually some rain in on yati where we were staying um this morning but on when the rain does come and it has been dry we know the roads you know it's typical of what happens in southern italy at the giro d'italia the, there's a lot of sort of grime on the roads and it becomes very slippy and it becomes very dangerous so um, it could be pretty treacherous and and especially in a an industrial an industrial town industrial area like bilbao it it could be one of those uh, a soapy experience for for the riders if you get if we get very wet roads to finish Brian, I promised you we are in Rioja, the most famous wine-producing region of Spain. I promised you I'd give you not 90 seconds, not the full 90 seconds of the Resumen uh, Contra Arello, but 30 seconds on Rioja. So I'm going to count you in. We're going we're gonna to hear the, the time trial, the, the countdown, and off you go. Well, it's a little bit like, I don't know if you say that in English, it's like asking the devil to read the Bible and, and pick up the highlights. Yeah, so yeah, it, is, it is the most famous wine-producing uh, area of Spain. It's divided into three areas, and you were in one of them today, near the town of La Guardia. It's the Rioja Alavesa. Uh, I can just sum up why I don't like Rioja. I think it's too... Quickly, Brian, quickly. It's, it's too, it's too fruit-heavy. It's too much, way too much oak, oftentimes American oak. And I think the pairing of those two doesn't make for a lot of freshness, which is something that I like. Uh, but it's, yeah, it's, it's the one wine that people who don't know anything about Spanish wine actually do know. One thing that I'm curious about, lastly, is 10% of Rioja is actually uh, producing white wine. And I'd be curious to taste that because I don't think you have a lot of tradition for over-oaking 
white wine in Spain. So maybe that could be the key to my liking of a potential new interest in in Rioja because the red ones you can uh, you can drink as many of as you want. I'm not going to compete with you in the line of picking them up. Last night for my aperitif, Brian, I had a glass of the lovely Basque wine that we talked about in the wine podcast that was released on the rest day. In fact, that was yesterday. Uh, Chacoli, which I think I pronounced Chacoli in the wine podcast. I didn't realize there was an accent on the final I. Very acidic, slightly pétillant, slightly fizzy and um, very interesting. Uh, very much recommended um, I mentioned the wine podcast of course our Selección de la Vuelta our six Vuelta wines still available from D Vine Cellars um, log on to D Vine Cellars that's the letter D then vinecellars.com and you'll find all you need there to order the wines I should also say that Stacy Snyder's Vuelta España mugs espresso cups um, went on sale on Saturday and sold out in double quick time as usual almost instantaneously almost sold out before they'd gone online um, but that's nothing new a bit like Primoz Roglic roglifying the Vuelta a España Brian I think that concludes the evening's entertainment I'm off to have another glass of Chacoli probably some more meat unfortunately because there are simply no op- options no other options up here in the Basque Country particularly because I don't eat fish and um, Brian what's on the menu for you tonight well, my wife just texted me that the kids are already sleeping. So I'll, I'll definitely be enjoying a, a glass of chilled wine of my own production, which I've now finally oh, have wow. collected and brought back from the Tour of Denmark, thanks to Tim Lindley of Novo Nordisk driving it all the way from Jutland to Tuscany. So, yeah, there will be a world premiere of my own wine here tonight. Brian, I will see you. Well, I'll be hearing from you and the listeners will be hearing for you, from you again later in the week. Tomorrow, we have got lucky Larry Warbass of AG2R Citroën returning for a second appearance on the Cycling Podcast Welter coverage. So we will catch up with everyone then. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Daniel. And hasta luego. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.